Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone, to another interesting and provocative conversation about chronic pain. And our guest today, I'm really excited to be talking with Dr. Joshua Rash. So Josh is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Memorial University of Newfoundland. Uh, He's a director of the Memorial University of Newfoundland Behavioral Medicine Center. So Memorial University is near and dear to my heart. I actually did my medical degree there, but it's also an incredibly beautiful and uh, wonderful province to, to live in, but also to visit. So I would Tell everyone, please include Newfoundland in your bucket list. So Josh is a senior research fellow at the Duke University Center for Health Policy and Inequality Research. He is a clinical health and rehab psychologist, and he will talk about that in his podcast with extensive expertise. Uh, This guy is so knowledgeable, both in behavioral medicine, health behavior change, chronic disease management, and cardiovascular psychophysiology. Dr. Rash has significant experience conducting multi-site pragmatic clinical trials that involve pharmacological and behavioral interventions. So I want to so uh, welcome Josh. His expertise is highly sought in chronic pain management, weight management, stress management, motivating health behavior change, treatment of insomnia and cardiovascular uh, psychophysiology, as we talked about. Uh, He's had the privilege of working with provincial governments and not-for-profit organizations, including the Salvation Army and mentorship networks, uh, including uh, the mentorship network, which I also participate in, which is the Atlantic Mentorship Network. We did talk about the mentorship in previous podcasts, so if you're really interested in learning more about the mentorship and how you can join, please check in. So the Mentorship Network in itself is, is a very important resource within Atlantic Canada to help transform healthcare delivery, but also link multidisciplines uh, to um, um, sort of best evidence, best, best uh, practice, um, supportive practice, uh, and any way we can help uh, promi- provide and promote uh, quality of life for our patients. So welcome, Josh. Yeah, it's so great to be here today, Maureen. I've, uh, like you said, it's been a little bit of uh, scheduling, and, and thanks for having me on today. So I always, um, I always wonder about the terminology. Like, how, how, how does the profession that you work in like to be referred to? Are you psychologists, psychotherapists? How do you, how do you, how do you frame your profession? Yeah, and I think for this, it's probably best to start narrow and then broaden into a bit of a funnel. So in the most um, broad definition, um, I consider myself a healthcare professional uh, registered within a governing body the same way a physician would be. Um, Some people might classify it as mental health professional, um, which might capture things like psychologists, uh, sometimes social workers, uh, other individuals like psychotherapists and trained counselors who do in some ways, many similar, much similar work to a psychologist. If we go just a little bit further, so I am a psychologist Mm -hmm. and I'm a registered psychologist. So not all psychologists are registered, meaning Mm -hmm. that they don't all adhere to professional practice standards and are registered to see clients and help them overcome psychological concerns. Within the registered psychologists, we also give a designation as to our areas of competency. So for myself, I am a clinical health and rehabilitation psychologist. So that means I help people with clinical concerns, concerns yeah. like major depression, clusters of anxiety disorders, perhaps general anxiety disorders, 
also those who have health problems or difficulty adjusting to major health concerns. So things like cardiovascular disease, cancer, and chronic pain. And then I also have substantial expertise working in rehabilitation. And so that's also an area where we see a lot of need for chronic pain management. For example, if somebody has experienced a complex polytrauma, several mm -hmm. breaks across their body and need need psychological approaches to help them adjust and partake in rehabilitation so they can reach their optimal functioning again. I don't know if that's as clear, perhaps, but I think it's the easiest way for me to, to get it across, maybe. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge, uh, broad scope, obviously. So um, do you dedicate specific time to those different areas or are they kind of things that pull you into different directions depending on how the day is shaped? Yeah, I would say it. Um, I, I dedicate a fair amount of time to those different areas. So for myself, I am a practicing clinician with a private practice, but I am also an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at Memorial University of Newfoundland, where I train psychologists. And so I do a lot of teaching and research, which focuses much more on clinical psychology, sometimes a bit on health psychology as well. And then within the private practice, I see the gamut from clinical psychology concerns, people with panic disorder, major depression, insomnia, moving more towards health psychology, and then also people with chronic pain. I don't do quite as much rehabilitation because that really does require um, inpatient multidisciplinary care, and it's much more challenging to do as an independent practitioner. Wow. Yeah, that's a that's a really diverse practice. It sounds fascinating, actually. I mean, yeah, I love it. Yeah. Well, you know, and the other thing that you quickly realize, especially in those areas, is that often you're working within a collaborative team because it is so important. Those are really heavy areas to to be working in by yourself. Would you agree or? Oh, I absolutely that um, you, you couldn't have said it any better. It's very challenging to try to help somebody with the complexities of major multiple comorbidities in life without that interdisciplinary team. However, working within such an interdisciplinary team, you really get to know um, a lot of healthcare professionals within your community, and you really get to feel supported knowing that you're doing the the best things that you can for your clients, which includes diversity of healthcare practitioners, um, each taking sort of independent roles to work together to help the client reach their goals and, and achieve their optimum potential. Yeah, I mean, it, one of the things that I find is so the only I mean, I obviously in different spaces, I, uh, I always think of like the emergency room, obviously, is a sort of a team approach, obviously, to many, many types of illnesses, but we're not it's not the same as when I'm working in the pain self-management program where I'm working alongside, you know, uh, physiotherapy, occupational therapy, where, uh, I mean, uh, your profession generally is a hard profession to recruit. And right now we're short a psychologist. Um, but I find what we what happens when we're working in those teams as well is we learn so much from each other. So a lot of those skills uh, that my colleagues teach me, I find they, there's a ripple effect in terms of how I bring those into the other environments that I work in. Um, so it's, um, it's just, you can't put a price tag on that. And, uh, I don't know if we can train people to really appreciate how valuable that is. And especially in the medical field, we often have these, well, you know, we have to go in there and do it on our own. And, you know, um, when our particular team set up, I mean, I, I was really afraid, how is that going to work? You know, multidiscipline, but we decided to do it. And, oh my God, I could never imagine going back to uh, me as a clinician 
going in assessing the patient by myself and then making referrals to different specialists. My, you just, this is so valuable to be doing it together and so much more efficient, I think, for the patient as well. I couldn't have said it better myself, Maureen. That's, um, you're absolutely right. It, it also, not only do you learn so much just through the sort of osmosis of knowledge, but really when you get to work together, it reminds me of sort of my days working in the rehabilitation center at the Ottawa Hospital. Um, working with, for example, an individual with complex third degree burns over their body, the OT and the physiotherapist would work with them for movement, which was very, very painful. And so I would join the conversation and take them through relaxation exercises while they were receiving physio to be able to sort of push through and try to stretch the tendons and ligaments and the skin that was burned. So again, like when you get to work together, it's really rewarding and valuable. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you're just highlighting so important the the aspect of the talk therapy along with other types of therapy, and uh, um, you know, getting people to that place of calm and trust is is so important. And I often, um, especially when I'm doing procedures in the emergency room, say a suturing, I refuse to do a suture if that patient is in. You know, you'll often and many patients don't realize how that fight or flight response is. Uh, occurring. And I, I can remember, you know, walking in a room and a, a guy just hanging on to the side railings. Right? Was co- I was coming in to do some suturing and I went, wow, you're, and he wasn't even aware of how his body was reacting. It was so, it was so instinctive for him to hang on, you know, I guess from his previous experience, but also just the anticipation of what was going to happen. And uh, so I really had to talk him through. And I said, look, I'm not doing anything to you until we get you into a safe mindset and that this is going to be okay and we'll get you through this kind of thing. But um, I wish I had a psychologist with me carrying them through the eMERGE because I'll tell you, that's one of those very high intensity environments. And not because, I think a lot of people misperceive the eMERGE generally in the sense that they think there's a all kinds of, you know, trauma and there is lots of stuff that goes on, but generally probably 70% of what we do is primary care. Um, But it's such a high intensity environment from the patient's brain's perspective that they often, their brain is feeling a lot of danger, just even walking into that space. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are about that. Oh, I I completely agree. Um, I think there's, there's a lot loaded within that. Um, First is just the way we design our physical spaces. I've always thought about, you know, running an experiment where sometimes you administer pain when there's um, innocuous cues like a fire extinguisher close by. Those kind of threat cues, uh, people pick up on them. They might Mm. be subliminally, but they do. Um, The other thing I think which you highlighted so nicely is that oftentimes because of societal messaging, let's take in, in this case with perhaps a traditional male patient at the ER, you know, they might have this image that they should grin and bear that pain. So maybe that they were really hanging on and probably sweating quite a bit because they were in a fair bit of pain and aroused from the um, experience or the surgery or the sutures. And again, that's something that has is deeply ingrained in many of us from how we were raised. So I think it also brings in the culture and societal messages that we've received. Yeah, exactly. I mean, emergency department, even the term itself, Going through those doors, I'm sure it will trigger many, many patients. Um, so I'm really curious, Josh, how the heck you ended up in Newfoundland. <laughs> I know how I got there. I actually had spent probably 12 years early in my career. We were talking about this earlier. Um, went to, over to Newfoundland at the time. I was uh, 
uh, dating someone who was a RCMP. So he got stationed in one of the rural communities. And I absolutely love the province um, and ended up staying. But I'm curious about how you ended up in Newfoundland and, uh, and, and the career that you took. Yes. Yeah, so um, I guess let me lay out a bit of a trajectory. It was um, it, so myself, I'm born and raised in northern British Columbia. Uh, a bit of a sort of rural town, Prince George, British Columbia. It's uh, known for their pulp mills there, actually. And I, I've always been interested in in sort of people. I've always been very social, interested in psychology, sort of what makes people tick. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did my bachelor's and master's at the University of Northern British Columbia. And there I worked with uh, Dr. Kenneth Perkichin, who has done a lot of research around pain behaviors and the universal facial pain expression, which we've done quite a bit of work developing training protocols for. And I really became interested in pain working with Ken. It, For me, it was the puzzle of pain that was just so alluring. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, I have lots of family members who have chronic debilitating pain, uh, for example, my mother, and you get to see the impact that it has, but you also get to see people adjust and be resilient and live really strong and robust lives with it. So that dynamic always caught me to be very um, fascinating. Uh, from BC, I did my PhD out of the University of Calgary. I trained with Dr. Tavis Campbell, who is a, a clinical health psychologist. And again, I kept my pain research going through, but I also learned a lot about meeting the clients where they're at and motivating behavior change, which was really helpful and beneficial for me. Uh, I did my internship out of the Ottawa Hospital, so within uh, University of Ottawa uh, um, Heart Institute, uh, the Rehabilitation Centre, and again, it just furthered my interest and and made it very clear that rehabilitation, pain management, uh, helping people make health behaviour changes that they can sustainably maintain was really valuable and important to me. Yeah. Uh, at that time, um, the academic job market, it's one of those things where it can be really challenging to find jobs. Um, so when they're available, you, you sort of you know apply for what's uh, open and available. Uh, I had one of my colleagues, Dr. Sheila Garland, who worked uh, was an assistant professor at Memorial University of Newfoundland at the time. Sheila is an exceptional um, health psychologist. Uh, she works in um, psychosocial oncology as well as uh, sleep medicine. And Sheila was a former student of Tavis as well. And so she sort of put in the good word for me and and was, um, you know, notifying me of the job at Memorial. Uh, and I couldn't be happier to um, apply an interview there. So this is one of these sort of odd stories where somebody says they're moving to Newfoundland yeah. for work and employment. And, and I really haven't looked back. Um, our department yeah. is very collegial. The university uh, is exceptional and quite supportive of the work that I do. So it's, it's really been a huge win for me. Yeah, it's a very... Um... I mean, I was quite, I did my, 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 actually, when I ended up in Newfoundland, uh, worked in outposts for a number of years and then made the decision to apply to medicine. And because I had lived there for so long, I was seen as a Newfoundlander, even though most people recognize you as a CFA-er. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Come from away. I don't know how I'm many times I, kiss, yeah, how many times I kissed the cod, but <laughs> I don't even know if you kiss cod. Do you have to kiss the cod? Uh, yeah, I mean, that practice is still carrying on to, to this day. Uh, to me, though, it was more about, um, you know, exploring Newfoundland and, you know, yeah. got out to grow some more in there uh, last summer. And it was just beautiful. Oh, that to me is more traditional yeah. Newfoundland. Yeah, it's a, it's an apps. I keep telling people it has to be on your bucket list because um, it is an absolutely beautiful province to explore. And if you love to do things in the outdoor, if you love to hike, you know, fish. Uh, well, actually, even I learned to play golf there, even though... 
oh my God, I'm not a good golfer, but you know, if you, if you learn, if you can play in Newfoundland, you can play anywhere. Um, cause you've got these little tufts of grass on top of rock, but it's just an absolutely gorgeous province to, to explore. Absolutely. I'd add one more to the list. If you uh, want to come pick blueberries, oh, <laughs> that's yes. another local and, favorite. And what are the, what are the name of the berries that are famous there? Um, is it gooseberry? No. Um, ah, Anyway, I'll think about it. It's a very, very rare berry. It's very bitter. It's a little bit orange. It's mostly probably up around St. Anthony, although we did see, we could find some in St. John's as well. But yeah, everybody went berry picking. <laughs> yes, and I know exactly what you're talking about. I actually have some in my fridge, but I'm blanking on it right now as well. Yeah, I wish I could remember the name of that because it's very, very unique to Newfoundland. Of course, somebody will end up sending me an email and say, what do you... <laughs> How could you forget about the berry? Exactly. You really are a CFA. That's what they'll say. I, I, you know, yeah, come for away. Yeah, you never, you're never really a true, true Newfoundlander. So I think, you know, why I, I'm always fascinated, because I am fascinated. Uh, I definitely have no training in, in uh, psychology or psychotherapy, but I think as every human, we're always interested in how our brain functions for sure. But I'm always amazed at how much stigma uh, psychotherapies are, or maybe it is my, my, my stigma in the sense that when I'm trying to have conversations with uh, clients around tools that we can use to manage uh, chronic pain, the important tools that come from, you know, psychotherapy as a profession are really invaluable. And, uh, but they're, they're, then immediately somebody will say to me, well, you, you think it's all in my head then, don't you? I'm sure you get that a lot as well. Yes, uh, that's, that's very common. Um, I would like to believe that the stigma around um, mental health and psychotherapies is, is getting better. It's improving. Um, but yeah, that's something we get all the time. Uh, when I was working in chronic pain clinics, the, the very first thing that we um, ask clients is, you know, what's your understanding of why you've been referred here today? And again, we are specifically looking for people to give us that indication of, I've been told it's all in my head, because that's a really important myth and misconception that then needs to be addressed. I mean, as you know, um, you know, pain is uh, absolutely perceived as a neural experience. So the fact that people could think it's all in my head. Well, in some ways, yes, that's true. The brain does interpret pain and it is a constellation of neural activity that gives us that experience of pain. Um, but it's really, I think, more of highlighting two things. One is that there is mental health literacy that still needs to be um, taught and bolstered within our communities. Uh, the fact that psychological doesn't mean all in your head and actually has a very prominent behavior change and behavior modification component. And then second is, um, I think it would behoove us to be very careful and set very clear expectations about why we're, we are referring clients to particular services. Um, for example, if you are referring somebody to see a mental health professional or a psychologist to let them know that, you know, this is largely because when we have something complex like pain, it is impacted by so many things, by the weather, by the environment, but also by our mood and how we've been feeling and what we've potentially had to give up or stop doing because of pain in our lives. So I think the expectation setting could be really helpful um, within this area as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've learned to because it's so common, so frequent. Now, it's interesting for me um, because it, I experience it differently in different spaces that I work. And I'm, I'm really blessed being in a small community that I work in, you know, Emerge Palliative Care. I also do some work in addictions. And uh, so there's different sorts of perceptions in, in those different environments. But I've I've learned to see that comment in a different way. I see it almost as a form of armor that it's almost like in some ways it's how the patient is trying to 
I don't know if it, I don't feel it's a testing, but it, it, I see it as an armor. I mean, the, the illness itself is so heavily stigmatized within our communities. And, and so many individuals have had experiences that have been very, very negative, uh, especially when it comes to trying to find individuals who they can trust around uh, and validate uh, their chronic pain experiences in the different environments. So one of the things that um, uh, I, when I had uh, read, so I don't know if you had read some of the, the work, uh, uh, the recent book by Alan Gordon, uh, The Way Out. So he uses, a, a, when, he, when he hears that comment, what he does is he turns it back to the patient. I'd be interested in your thoughts on this as well. He asks the patients, do you have pain? And the patient obviously would say yes. And he said, then your pain is real. So I'm curious about your thoughts about that in terms of, because I'm, I'm thinking about tools that we can recommend for uh, healthcare providers that this is ha this happens so frequently, how we can change that, uh, you know, so that it gives that patient a sense of trust that we do believe them. Yeah, I, I haven't uh, had a chance to read that book. It sounds like it's, it's quite lovely, um, to be honest. I really like that message. If you experience pain, it is real. I also like the idea of breaking down the duality between um, the mind and the body, and really to emphasize that there is no discrepancy. The mind and the body are one. The central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system are interconnected. Uh, there is no differentiation. And really what we're what we're getting at there then is there are a variety of different ways with which we can make small improvements with somebody's pain and more importantly with their functioning in their daily life. And some of those will come from maybe more physically based treatments like uh, physiotherapy, but others may come from more psycho psychologically based treatment where we're really getting at people's assumptions, belief, and helping them with their mood um, and their acceptance of pain. But sometimes these conversations are unavoidable and need to happen. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that um, um, I'm finding more and more, and I'm sort of moving more into um, some of the literature around non-invasive neuroimaging, and I think what, uh, so functional MRIs, uh, PET scans, things like that. So, I mean, what we're learning from the non-invasive neuroimaging is just how important our brain is in terms of that pain processing and how we start to see how, through neuroplasticity how that brain starts to shift focus and what um, what i'm learning and what i'm understanding and you can correct me if i'm wrong is that not only does the brain get better at being in pain it also gets better at avoiding worsening pain and often the kinds of triggers that seem to be driving some of this process are the negative emotive triggers such as fear or danger uh, and anger. Curious. So what, what ends up happening in, in my mind is very similar to what we see when people develop. And I'm not saying this is this applies to all patients. Obviously, everybody's experience is going to be different. But from what I can see from what the non-invasive neuroimaging is that this is a really important thing that we need to recognize is it's almost similar to what we see when people develop fear of you know, when I think of fear of heights or fear of anything, I mean, all of us have something that we, it makes us pause, right? And that our brain gets more hypervigilant around that. I'm just curious about what your thoughts are about that, Josh. Uh, I would agree with you completely. Um, for resources on this, Laura Mir Mosley has a couple of really good YouTube vi videos um, where he talks about the experience of pain walking through the woods where he brushes uh, a tree up against him and he thinks it's a snake and he, and he gets quite startled at the time. And then therefore, every time 
that he's walking through in the future, he still has that startle response when he feels a twig and he initially thinks it's a snake, but the repeated exposure will make him feel less and less like it's a threat and realize and appreciate that it's likely to be a twig within that situation. And so I think really what it does is it highlights the notion that based upon learning principles and based upon how we've been raised, we do come to expect and anticipate certain events to be associated with certain outcomes. And in particularly challenging or traumatic situations, those events seem to etch a much firmer mental representation within our brain and make it much more likely that in the f in future situations where we're in similar environments or where we're in similar situations, we will interpret them the same way that we interpreted that initial traumatic event. And so again, it's really the fact that the human brain is really good at developing associations um, and really good at being conditioned. Now that can work against us sometimes. We can, as you say, be perhaps conditioned to anticipate more threat, more pain, more disability, but it can also work in our favor because through repeated exposures in a safe and graded way, we can actually have our brain reduce those associations, limit them, and appreciate that those associations might be very different, which will change our expectations. So I think that that is exactly what you're speaking. So we're going to stop here and pick it up on the other side and dig further into how promoting movement and activity through a lens of safety is crucial for meeting clients where they are. Josh is going to dig into this a little bit further. You're not going to want to miss it. Dr. Rash also digs into some of the psychological principles that promote movement and activity for individuals experiencing pain and how best to approach patients with chronic pain from a psychological Lens. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.